0: Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand coming right up.
1: Corn in the fields. And listen to the rest when the wind blows across the water.
2: King harvest is surely come. Cause she's so good
0: Welcome to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill. The panel is here. The The co-hosts are all in place. Yeah. The complete
2: entourage.
0: The, the, yeah, we're what all a, here what today. A beautiful thing. And I, I do believe, I'm going to introduce you all, though, but I just want to mention that Steve Mano is at the Massaro Farm. Steve, are you with us?
3: Yes, I'm glad to be here with you all.
0: That's fantastic. We have a full a full house today. Laura Mano on mic. Uh, m- m- uh, <laughs> Laura Mono. No, yes,
2: your secret uh, <laughs> sister. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Laura Maudlin on mic two, and Chris Ferrio on mic three. My name is Richard Hill. Did I say that already? Yes, And <laughs> I think so. I don't do. <laughs> Come on, panel. you're here, Chris. Let's, let's keep the hijinks to a minimum today, because we have a lot to do. <laughs> we have a lot to accomplish. We must get through this. I, we, we will somehow. I know if we... We put our shoulders to the to the
2: uh, grist mill or something. The grindstone, I think they call it. Shoulder to the grindstone. Shoulder,
4: shoulder to the,
2: something. I like don't that. remember. Shoulder yeah. Nice Laura, you're supposed to research,
0: research these things before. We...
4: <laughs> well, you sprung this on me. This is brand new. <laughs>
0: okay. Well,
4: <laughs> I'll find out for next time.
0: Please. Okay. Get on your phone. You should be able to find this out before we even get through the intro. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, we have a full show today. I want to mention what we're going to be doing. Of course, it's the first Thursday of the month, so we will be speaking with Vincent K., uh, Swords into Plowshares Honey. He will be standing by in just a moment to give us, uh, give us the honeybee report. And things are starting to buzz in Connecticut because spring has sprung. The daffodils are already wilting. Are they wilting? in
2: your- uh, No, they're, uh, they seem to be pretty fresh.
0: Yeah, the actually, one's I've
2: seen it it you know it's all um it, climate changes from like neighborhood to neighborhood it seems. <laughs> That's true. We all have our own weather systems. So, uh
0: but yeah, indeed the uh I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to hear from about from Vincent at 12:30 or thereabouts. Laura, what do we have in store?
4: Um, we have a special guest, Patrick Cummins. He is the executive director of Connecticut Audubon, and he's going to be talking to us about spring migration, bills that are going through um, Hartford, having to do with birds, and other wonderful things.
0: Yeah, and that's all, all very important because the bills that are going through the state legislature are have to do with enhancing and protecting the environment for birds and we will get to some very interesting yes. side topics related to that because we have been following the problems that could in, impinge upon bird migration in on this show and uh, here at PKN quite diligently so we'll we'll get to that when when in due course as they say uh, all right. Well, let us get rolling here with Laura Mana.
2: Mono- <laughs> oh man! You want t- me? You want want me to take over?
0: <laughs> not until I start. Not until I start drooling. Laura Modlin. <laughs> Laura Modlin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also want to mention we're going to, of course, have the small farms report from Massaro Farm with Steve Amuno. I was about to say Steve Modlin.
4: Steve Modlin. <laughs> right.
0: But, uh, yeah, so uh, Laura Maudlin is here with us to give us the lunar and solar report. Okay. And do tell us, don't forget to tell us how much daylight.
4: Well, that's at the very top of the report. Oh, excellent. That's the very first thing. Because if you remember correctly, um, the last show, which was three weeks ago, we were three minutes away from having equal daylight and equal darkness. And so I want you boys, gentlemen, to guess how much, now, of course, we are much, we are further on the side of more Daylight. So how much daylight do you think we've gained since the last, since three weeks ago?
2: Hmm.
4: I'm not, <laughs> not, not going to
0: guess because I have no I'm idea. I'm going to say 22 minutes.
4: No. We, we last, at the last show, we were three minutes away from 12 and 12. And now we are five minutes away from 13 hours of daylight. We have 12 hours and 55 minutes of daylight.
0: So can you do the math for us? How, m- how much have we gained?
4: Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> and actually,
2: actually, no, let me just break in for a second because yeah. um, I did go to, um, it's called timeanddate.com. Uh, the day after our last show was St. Patrick's Day, and St. Patrick's Day was the day of 12 and 12. That of makes equal, sense, yeah. Even though I thought it would be on the... Uh, what do you call it? The equinox, or, or yeah, the, the
4: equinox. No, that's apparently they they just when they first decided that that was equal day and night, it was so close, and they didn't have the proper measuring, and so the, it's now we know it's not a, it's not precise. So on on the equinox, but it is when the sun shines equally on the north and the south um, hemisphere.
0: Okay. Perhaps, so. um, Steve, would you care to give a guess on uh, the, <laughs> the actual number of minutes we have gained? Uh, I'm, it sounds like we almost gained an hour. Or we
4: gained almost an hour. Yeah. We gained We gained oh. like an hour, and, uh, and no, 58 minutes we gained in the last minutes three. It sounded of
3: like the math here. Yeah. Three minutes before and now 50, 55 minutes of extra, so.
4: 58. Yeah. Fifty eight minutes. And, and then of God. course we have two and a half months till the summer solstice when we'll be at fifteen hours and nine minutes. So that means today we our sun rose at six thirty six twenty-eight and we'll set at seven twenty-three. And so we've twelve hours and fifty-five minutes. So we really have to wait two and a half um more months until we so we'll gain, let's see. Um, over two hours in the next two and a half months.
0: Wow. You know, when it gets to be this much daylight, I start to think to myself, what am I going to do with all this extra daylight? You know, I'm like... Should I be out hiking? Should I be <laughs> Should I be drying my clothes on a clothesline? I don't know just it, it's, it was, <laughs> it, it, it's very daunting, I must say.
4: It's confusing. it really is. It's like should I be asleep? Should I be awake? Should I be outside inside? It is confusing, but you know eventually I I predict in the next two and a half months we'll have it down pat. It's for the okay. longest day
2: and, and I was thinking about something else and that is that of course it depends on your latitude. Yeah. what that is and it might be different it could be different where you are compared to being here well, in Bridgeport.
4: When I, <laughs> well that's that's a very good point but I'm ahead of you on this one Chris oh. because I look up the time of sunrise and sunset in Bridgeport, Bridgeport.
0: so this this is it Bridgeport.
4: is yes this is Bridgeport's timing right. and I'm sure it's different it's like there's like yeah. yeah, there is like difference say, wherever because like of the,
2: like the angle. Like where Suzanne Dusing lives, it might be different because she's like a, like an hour away from here.
4: Right.
0: Yeah, or 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 Steve in in, in Woodbridge. Oh, that's true. A little bit different. Yeah. Well, anyway. um, you have more for us? I, I do. I, okay. I have a,
4: I have a whole slate here. Um, I just want to mention that this morning at 12:34 a.m., the pink moon was full and um and i i i think what do you tell me you guys just i'm just curious this has been occurring to me does the name pink full moon like is that the least masculine full moon name we have <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, I, well, I, I would so. say
2: so. I'm wondering, I, I, I'm imagining these things go back to um, Native American. They
4: are Native American, and they, they all come from there, and there are translations into English or whatever, but it's that is the origin of them. So um, it's – and I think the, the May's moon is the flower moon, so that's not very – but pink, I mm-hmm. think, is the is, – is least masculine.
0: Is it in fact, uh, you know, does it derive from the the shade of the of the moon at that time? or well, no. It, mm-hmm. it
4: was the, it was a flower. It was named after a, one of the fox flowers. Oh,
0: yeah. There is a flower called the pinks. There are pinks, hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Those are
4: flowers. Okay, but we have to move on because we yes. have more. Um, April eleventh next week is considered the luckiest day of the year because up in the sky, Jupiter and the sun can. Which means that we have the Earth, then the Sun, and then on the other side of the Sun is Jupiter, and they're lined up perfectly. And it's just considered by, it's like an old thing that it's a very auspicious day. So I don't really have much more to say about it than that. (laughs) Although it was very interesting in my research, I found that the Sun and Jupiter, the gravity force between them is almost 12 times um, as uh, greater than the gravity force between the Earth and the Sun, which you know seemed oh. interesting.
2: Yeah, because it's a larger planet. Yeah, and it's farther away.
4: So yeah. um, I'll just say quickly, um, if we since last time we talked about how um, the the further you get from the equator, the more difference there is in terms of sunlight and sun and day, uh, night during the year. And Svalbard is up is an archipelago off of Norway, and they just came out of Polar Night last month, or no, in February. And they're going to be going into Polar Day on April 19th, where it's going to be four months of light. And they're only 500 miles from the North Pole. So, And they're the furthest north-occupied town in the world. So I thought that was interesting. But the big, big news this, this month is the solar eclipse... Um, on the night of the 19th to the 20th, and it's the rarest type of solar eclipse. It's called a hybrid, and that's because it changes in its appearance from annular to total and then back to annular at specific points in the path. And a total total eclipse happens when the moon is directly overhead um, in, on from Earth, and its apparent size as seen from Earth is closely matches that of the sun. So that's um a total eclipse and, um, and in places where the moon is closer to the horizon, it will appear slightly, um, smaller than the sun and we get an annular eclipse, which is when you see a ring of fire around, um, the moon and <clears throat> solar eclipse are only visible in a small part of the world. And, um, I know that Richard, you and I talked about me g- reporting from the, the, the point of when it goes, the hybrid when it goes back and forth between annular and total, and that's in the, like in remote parts of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Right. So I'm just wondering, is your is your helicopter on the roof waiting for me?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> Take me to Kennedy. You're going to be there. It's just a question of how we get you there and, right. how, and how we get you back from there. And I I I have I have in fact been looking at the Army and Navy stores, and I know that there's a rubber raft
2: that should yeah should be sufficient. Okay. I don't um, I don't think they have drones that carry people yet.
4: No, but you know, uh, <laughs> but it's very interesting. It's, you know, just in these remote parts and I wonder if there are cruises that specifically like look for this part because it's very rare and it goes, and that's the only place along its path that it goes between annular and total and the total phase and, and, and on land, there are only people are going to see the total phase and they're going to, that will be visible part of Southeast Asia, part of Indonesia and part and part of Western Australia. And um, the next Solar eclipse, which will be f- annular, will be on October fourteenth this year, and the next hybrid solar eclipse will be on November fourteenth in twenty thirty one.
2: How- so I, I have a question.
4: Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and, and I uh, just I want to know. remind our listeners that you this is the
2: organic farm stand,
4: <laughs> and so. and, okay. I, and I
2: just so I just, my question is so why are we talking about if we can't see it.
4: No, uh, is it. It's is interesting, it, I thought. Is
2: yeah. this this is not vis- gonna be visible in, in our
4: No, but interior? um I think one of the next ones will be visible.
2: <laughs> I hope so, Laura. I mean there are all kinds of astronomical things happening <laughs> that we can't see from the northern hemisphere.
4: Okay. <laughs> so I'm done. <laughs> Get back to farming.
2: <laughs> you're damn right you're done. Get out of here. All right. <laughs> No, okay. that, that was I just thought it was uh,
4: interesting. It's you know, part of our of, natural world. I almost you know? thought of adding
2: it my is. own feature, um, but I'm not going to.
0: Okay. But because- I, I think we need, we need to move on to some yes. actual farm. farm issues. Okay. And we do have our itinerant farmer standing by. So let's go straight to Masara Farm where Steve Mono is standing by. Steve, oh sorry for the long wait, but <laughs> we have finally brought you into focus.
3: Well, I'm glad <laughs> to be here and always happy to hear about the stars and astronomical happenings. Uh, I generally don't subscribe, you know, colors to uh, gender issues. So on the pink moon, <laughs> I'm totally comfortable with that. Thank you, Steve. Okay. See, Steve of, appreciates
4: um, me. Yeah. So there's, And,
3: you know, looking out at the trees around the farm, only some have bloomed. You know, we had the witch hazel bloom early a couple months ago. We've got um Willows in bloom now as well, but there's a lot of that red and pink swelling of the buds of the trees. You oh, know, yes. so we're going to be seeing a lot of blooming soon. So although I, I realized it was the pink was connected to a, a flower, uh, but there is a lot of that sort of light pink and uh, red blush on the on the the trees now as they are readying to, you know, emerge. Uh, and bloom, so so that 's exciting here, but you know it, it it really feels like spring, the fog this morning burned off with it warmed up a bit, and uh, I was out this morning spreading compost in the in the field, uh, getting ready for our plantings, both uh, out in the field now and as we continue to turn over crops from our winter crops in the tunnel uh, of note for me today was seeing that one of, one of our varieties of kale has just started to flower, you know, that we've been harvesting all winter. So we have three varieties of kale in our tunnels. We have a, a lacinato, kind of that dinosaur kale that started flowering, you know, in mid-February. It was sort of the first to go to flower. And then uh, more recently, a week or two ago, the, the red curly sort of, it's a, you know, a lot of vegetable names get called red when they're really a deep purple. So we have this deep purple kale, Mm. Ruffled curly leaf it's called curly roja um it started flowering about two weeks ago um, and what that happens when it's flowering it's making like a nice little broccoli floret um so kale is related to broccoli and cauliflower and when when they go to seed there's a the sort of center stem comes up like a little tree, and then opens a small little little broccoli-like flower. still edible, especially if we get them before they open up all the way. And they have a nice tender stem. We can still harvest the leaves from the plant. Um, so, And we'll include those in our bunches, too. So when we're making our bunches of kale now, we'll cut these florets uh, as well and include them in our bunches. So if you see us at the market this weekend uh, in, in New Haven, City Feed, at the Conte West School by Wor- Worcester Square, we'll have bunches of these three different types of kale, Our uh, dinosaur kale or lacinato, deep purple curly roha, they'll have for us. And now the the, uh, Russian varieties, red Russian and Siberian, Mm -hmm. which are sort of a flatter leaf with a serrated oak leaf-like leaf edge, they're always the last um, to flower, which is nice because it means it'll take us further into the spring. So, you know, before we have our kale that we'll plant now, you know, to be ready to harvest, we can still harvest it wintered uh, crop, you know, deep into April, which is nice. So that, you know, those earlier varieties that flowered won't be around much longer. But the those two uh, red Russian and Siberian uh, varieties, you know, only just started flowering. So we'll get another few weeks of harvest off of them. You know, and then hopefully that'll link us right up next to some of the first crops of the year that we planted, uh, you know, our our salad turnips, our radishes, some of our first plantings of lettuce. Uh, we'll be ready in a month or so. And actually, we've got some salad greens and arugula coming soon, too. But uh, it's nice to see, you know, our, fall, our late summer and fall plantings taking us all the way through winter into spring and sort of linking up with our, our now spring plantings.
0: Mm. Sounds great. T- talk, tell us a little bit about you. You mentioned uh, spraying compost. Is that what you said before?
3: Spreading, spreading. Oh, spreading. Okay. So we're not. We don't spread it. We spray it. So we're. This is uh, compost that we've made from uh, leaf mulch. So okay. we get. Um, we have leaves that uh, are collected by local landscapers. So you know, and we talk in the fall about maybe leaving your leaves on the ground um, or chopping them up and leaving them to fertilize your own lawn. You really don't need to bring in other fertilizer. Uh, but for the leaves that are picked up, you know, they need somewhere to go. And so we are one of those farms in the area that accept uh, leaves from a few landscapers. And we pile them up and, uh, you know, I'll aerate them by, you know, turning them with the bucket on our tractor or sticking our forks in it and sort of lifting and aerating it, keeping oxygen in for all the fungal life, all the bacterial life, all the invertebrates in there so that they can break down, um, you know, the leaves that you see and turn it into uh, so- soil, basically, compost that we can spread. Mm-hmm. So the, the finished compost that I'm spreading now uh, was from leaves that we received in November and December of 2021. So it's, it, you know, it's a full year and another few months uh, that it takes to ready that compost for us. So it's, um, yeah, it's about a 15, 16-month process for us from going from leaves uh, that we received to compost that we're spreading on the farm.
0: Excellent. And so, all right, so this is, it's definitely not too late to actually be putting this on your beds and, and, uh, you know, flower or vegetable areas that eventually you will plant in?
3: Right, yeah, you can spread compost now. It's fine to spread in the fall, um, but, you know, it's nice to spread where you need to be careful is if you're spreading manure, um, so if you're spreading manure, you need you know that hasn't composted fully and might have still some um, you know something in there that could be harmful. You, you need a you need a break between when you spread manure and when you um, harvest something. So we have a 90 day window or a 120 day window uh, between spreading and harvesting, depending on what kind of crop it is. Uh, but with something like leaves that don't have any manure in it, we don't have that sort of worry. Um, so we're adding, you know, mostly I, I like to say we're adding organic matter here to the soil, um, you know, because we don't test our compost piles to see exactly its, its uh, nutrient breakdown. So I don't know its nutrient profile. I don't know how much nitrogen or uh, phosphorus or potassium or any of the micronutrients are in there. Um, so I'm not doing a regular testing of that. Um, but I know that I'm adding organic matter, um, and I know that I'm adding, you know, there's some real life in there. If you go through our, our compost, there are uh, there are fungal life, there's bacterial life, there's, there are worms and invertebrates. Um, so we're, we're adding a good bit of life to the soil uh, and that organic matter. And the organic matter, you know, helps with absorbing rain, uh, helps with absorbing water, uh, And can be a a buffer, you know, uh, against maybe some other nutrient deficiencies. But um, you always got to be careful with how much you spread. You don't want to overspread. But you know, in our case, we don't quite make enough compost to spread around the whole farm. So I'm sort of targeting specific areas, um, and you know, based on what we've planted previously and what we'll be planting this year, to where I will spread our compost. Uh,
0: Any recommendation on on the depth of the spreading in other words an inch two three
3: yeah it would really depend on on you know what 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 you're working with now and what you're hoping to do so you know if you've got a, a pretty good bit of soil um and if you've got a healthy productive um garden you might not need a big layer but if you're just getting started you might want to be adding you know more or, or if you haven't added in years you might want to add a thicker layer this year but um, it really depends on what your starting point is and then what crops you're growing. So, you know, there are crops like we think about our fruit and crops that are really demanding and need a lot of nutrients, um, might want some more compost and some um, some more fertilizer of some kind, whereas a crop like our earliest um, salad yeah. turnips and radishes and, and yeah, arugula, don't they don't demand a whole lot of nutrients from us, so we don't need to give it too much. Um, so it really depends on whether that's a sort of a heavy feeding crop or a light feeding crop. So if you in your garden have beds and you know where you're going to plant those, the, the fruiting things that continually give us tomatoes or continually give us cucumbers, those things are a bit more demanding and want to have some more nutrients available. Uh, And things that are in the ground for a long time also need, you know, some more nutrients. So, and you don't have to do it all at once. You can always put stuff down now. And then the things that are in the ground a long time, you can give them, you can top them off later or side dress them, whether it's with Mm. a little more compost or with, um, you know, a sprinkle of fertilizer, you know, a quarter cup or a half a cup of some kind of fertilizer. Um, There's lots of ways you can add. So you're not late for doing anything. This is a, a great time to be starting working in your garden. And uh, you can put compost down now, but yeah, manure. If, if for some reason you have access to manure, um, that's where I'd be mindful right now.
0: Um, Understood. And, Very good. Yeah. And uh, just last question before we we get Vincent on with us is: Is this a time when you begin to think about planting strawberries, or, or have your thoughts actually turned to action?
3: Yeah, if you are gonna if you're gonna plant strawberries, this is a fine time to do it. Um, we we typically still you know plant ours in the fall, but this is a, a time you'll see you know in April and May is when a lot of growers in New England will be planting their strawberries. You might get just a little bit this year. You, you know, the intention if you're planting strawberries right now is not for this year's harvest; it's for future harvest. Oh, okay. Um, so you, you might see a little bit of flowering and you might get a few fruits, but really the intention is for next year. So this year they get, their, they get established, they get their roots set. In the fall, they'll send out some runners to spread a little more. Uh, and then you'll, next year will be your first real harvest from strawberries that you plant now.
0: Beautiful. Now, should we bring Vincent on?
2: Yeah, That's I, you, I, I, yeah, I think it's a good edge. idea. Okay, Could, we have our main guest coming up in like five minutes too. Uh, so.
0: Well, we can we can do that, delay that by a minute or two. But let us get Vincent Kay, Swords into Platters Honey, and Steve, stand by and please uh, join in anytime you have a thought or a question you'd like to add to the mix. Vincent, how you? Yes. Do- hello, hello, <laughs> hello, hello. How you doing? We are. We're,
6: we're doing well. Um, we're back in New Haven. We were racing around. This morning, um, feeding, uh, uh, filling, I should say, filling cans of, uh, with uh, sugar syrup to give the bees a boost uh, before they go into the orchards in a couple of weeks. So we're getting things ready on that level. Um, we like to make sure that there's plenty of food and it actually helps uh, equalize some of the bad weather we've had, um, or I should say the non-flight weather for bees. Um, there's a number of things that are blooming right now but it really is weather dependent. So today's a wonderful day. The bees were flying, um, and, uh, and bringing in quite a bit of pollen, which I assume also has nectar with it. But some of the, the choice, um, blooms that we've noticed that the bees are on now, believe it or not, are things like skunk cabbage, um, in the woods and swamps, um, uh, witch hazel, which Steve mentioned earlier, um, uh, you'll see a, a shrub in, in a lot of the suburbs called Andromeda, and that has a white kind of uh, uh, flower, um, beady flower that, that smells like purple candy or Pez candy. I don't know how to describe it, but it, it has that aroma to it, and it's it's a long bloom. It lasts a long time. Um, they're feeding on also um, uh, maple blossoms, birch blossoms, um mm-hmm we're uh let's see we're, we're of course the, the the dandelions haven't really started um in full yet but they're certainly on the chickweed which is a small little white flower sometimes you don't even notice it. you're walking in it but it's uh it's very good for the bees early in the season um and of course then some of your bulbs you know that are blooming your you know um hydrangea and and other things uh, not hydrangea um uh, hyacinths and um and uh, crocuses and snowdrops, things like that. But um, hmm. in general, things are just starting. Um, and the bees, of course, as the days get longer, as Laura was mentioning, uh, we um, do uh, notice um, the brood nest in some of the hives, or almost all of the hives, I should say, getting larger. So um, as the days get longer, the queen is laying more eggs. And it's, uh, it's uh, related to, to the amount of light that's available in the day as well as the amount of forage available. Um, so there's a number of factors and those are two of them. Um, but true. Um, we are seeing a lot of uh, also, and I have to mention this, but anywhere you can be a diplomat for pollinators is a great thing because, you know, the onslaught of, um, pesticides and herbicides has begun with the little yellow tags that you see everywhere, <laughs> the, little, yeah. the, the lawn signs and, um, you know, it's, it just amazes me that the people still are, are committed to that, um, poisons. Um, it's one thing for a grower on a large scale to do it. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to produce a product, but in, in the lawns and underneath the wells that are underneath the lawns, um, are taking in those chemicals that you're putting on, on the surface in such a dramatic way that you're, not only poisoning pollinators but you're poisoning your family with the well water and a lot of connecticut is using well water it's not all um uh water provided by the water companies. so uh, people should really understand what they're doing and um and try to back off on that um if not get rid of it completely so um we're we're, um, making sure the bees have food we're feeding we're trying to make sure that the bear fences are working i think from our last conversation uh, a month ago richard um, yeah. we had a vote in the Connecticut state legislature, which voted down bear hunting. So I yeah. do need to say to the state of Connecticut, maybe you ought to think about, um, before you start a project like, um, distributing bears around the state for the reason of, of a, a bear hunt, <laughs> you ought to think about what you're doing because, you know, now we're left with this problem or I don't believe that there should be a bear hunt, but we're left with this problem of the bears and beekeepers in particular know very well the expense of trying to keep bears off of the hives the electric fencing and all of that it's just a huge expense but you can't you cannot keep bees in connecticut in any uh, large scale without these uh devices so um in some ways you know i, I didn't want to see a bear hunt but at the same time i don't want to see the state of connecticut move bears around to try to stimulate a problem that would require the hunting of the bears because um uh it's just uh agriculture is going to suffer, uh, not only beekeepers, but other people who have livestock. So, um, those are some of the things we're doing now and, um, keeping it short here, but it's, um, it's a busy time of year for us. Um, you know, we're just, um, we've been invited to the dance as we call it, the pollination, um, contract, um, by growers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're, we're getting the bees ready to truck in within the next two to three weeks. And um, we call it the prom of agriculture. So we, uh, the bees will go in and do their thing, and then uh, we get them out as quickly as we can and set up for honey production.
0: That is to say, these are these are farmers, oh, and you know, maybe fo- uh, uh, focusing mostly on fruit uh, production that that want the bees. That you you rent the uh, yes. bees to.
6: Yes. Um, is that right? Yeah, the commercial yeah. agriculture with the fruit and berry production um, really um, does quite well. Strawberries also um, um, Steve, you'll notice an increased yield if you had bees. Um, and if you could compare before you had bees and then when you have bees, and I know you have them there, so you're probably getting uh, adequate pollination for your strawberry fields. But um, I think I've heard figures of you know anywhere from 20 to 40% increase in berry yield. If bees are present um, for strawberries in particular, but um we go in, mostly the uh, the orchards uh, will call us and, and ask us to bring the bees in. And, and yes,
3: we do rent them to them. Uh,
0: Steve, any thought on that?
3: Well, you know, unfortunately I can't do a comparison because we've always had the bees here. So we've had bees here since our first year. And uh, strawberries we planted in our first year, and this, our second year, 2011, was our first harvest year. So um, I can't say I saw a bump, but I've, I've, I've always been happy with our strawberry harvest, and I do see the bees out there in our strawberry flowers. Yeah, yeah. We also um, have been getting ready also to
6: to. Uh, we, we happen to sell bees to other beekeepers, uh, mostly hobbyists and small-time operations, but um, the weather in California, which is where we get queen bees um, uh, to do the grafting of making the new hives, uh, they're sent overnight delivery to us. Um, that has been um, kind of interrupted by extreme uh, wet weather out in California this year. So they're having to drop ship queen bees in from Hawaii to California and then to us. So we're waiting on shipments of queen bees probably in, again, two to three weeks um, so that we can put together new hives.
0: Very good. Just one question about, you mentioned the, the, the different early flowers that are the bees are, are, are pollinating and getting pollen from. The, I we I noticed that there were butterflies, very small, the small white ones, that were uh, jumping from one myrtle flower to the next in my sort of back wild area or in, in, on the property I have. It, have everybody's told me that vinca, I think that that's called, the, that's the myrtle plant, are not plants that uh, welcome. You know, pollination is that your experience, or do you have any thought on that?
6: Well, it may it may be um, certain certain insects, um, and it might not be a butterfly; it might be a moth that you're watching. But Maybe. in any event, some of them are attracted to colors, and they'll go to the certain blossoms um, just out of the attraction visually um, to the color. Hmm. But it's it's got to usually has a purpose. So if they're not getting nectar, they might be getting pollen. So those are the two food sources for life. I mean, it's the carbohydrates and then the protein. And so um, certain flowers, I'll give you an example, like a chestnut um, blossom in the summer, you'll see bees all over it. But there's very little nectar produced, but they do produce a lot of pollen. And the bees will gather the pollen because that's a food source also and bring it back. And, And sometimes honey is like wine. It has aromas. I mean, sweetness is sweetness. It's, you know, a natural sugar. But the aromas from different flowers um, are part of the attraction of, of different honeys um, similar to wine I suppose but it's um, it's uh, you know the, the, the chestnut blossom will will flavor um, quite a bit of honey in a hive and you know the Andromeda that I mentioned um, which is a shrub again in the suburbs that I see often that sometimes I'll take a lid off a hive and I'll be able to say oh that smells so much like Andromeda and if Fact it is and and i'm not sure about the myrtle um but it might just be a very small amount of pollen just enough though um and uh, that one species of butterfly or moth may be uh really dependent on that so um hmm. great observation richard
0: yeah it's interesting I was, out, I was out there looking at them oh my god look they're pollinating well i yeah. think um we are ready for our special guest, and I'm going to turn it over to Laura to introduce. And and by the way, I just, I it's, it's interesting that you know there's, this is, the spring when a young man's heart turns to love, and so we're going to be talking about the bees and the birds today, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh- Nice, nice.
6: Yeah, we were,
4: I, That's very good. <laughs> nice Tied, segue. Good tie in there, yeah. So um, we have now Patrick Cummins, who's the executive director of Connecticut Audubon Society, and he's been in working in the bird conservation field for more than 20 years. And, in fact, he started his career with the Connecticut Audubon Society um, doing bird surveys and has evolved and gone to different positions at different um Areas for, for helping birds and is back now as executive director for the Connecticut Audubon Society.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Uh, uh, this is uh, an interesting topic for us today, especially because I know we have some folks from Brantford and East Haven, other towns on the shoreline, who are listening because they're really engaged in a pitch battle to defend the wetlands of East Haven and New Haven from the expansion of the Tweed Airport. And we, we could get your opinion on perhaps on the, how that expansion might have, uh, impact bird migration, which apparently is quite heavy right over that airport in its uh, present form. Uh, but t- tell us uh, what you're working on and what, can you, what how you want to start this conversation about bird migration.
1: Well... Um, Birds have declined a lot in the past 50 years. In fact, we've lost 30% of our birds, or nearly 3 billion birds, since 1970, according to uh, studies. And uh, there are a lot of things that are affecting bird uh, population declines. Uh, Habitat loss is is one of the uh, main ones.
0: Uh Uh-huh. yeah, so specifically in Connecticut, what what are we dealing with? What kinds of migrational patterns exist here, and how are they impacted by the different uh, changes that have happened in in terms of the you know land development and stuff like that?
1: We're the key. We're a key stop on the uh, Atlantic Flyway for birds that are moving to and from the uh, uh, boreal regions to the tropics. Uh, each. Each fall and returning now, this time of year, to our area and then heading more northwards. So, birds need a three legged uh, stool, if you will. They need uh, appropriate nesting habitat, they need appropriate wintering habitat, and they need appropriate migratory stopover habitat. And Connecticut offers all three for certain
0: species. Laura, um what thoughts do you have on this uh, topic and how, how much you uh, lead us from here?
4: Um, well, I, I remember when I was working on the project for the Mill River in Easton, um, I spoke with Patrick and he wrote a letter talking about how that area in Easton with the South Park Property which was undeveloped was a crucial stopover for bird migration and 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 led to um, a pathway. So, with trying to create a pathway for birds, where do you think is the most crucial area in Connecticut?
1: Well, the Connecticut River watershed is is a crucial pathway. Um, there's many undeveloped areas in the watershed and large forest blocks. Uh, um, Areas of globally significant wetlands along, right along the river, um, and it, and the river itself uh, is is a key flyway uh, in both spring and fall migration. Uh, so that's an area that we work a, a lot in. We're members of the Friends of County and the Silvio County National Fish and Wildlife Refuge. Um, encompasses the entire Connecticut River watershed. And they have certain special focus areas that they focus on where they can acquire land and other areas where they work in partnership with uh, organizations like Connecticut Audubon Society to improve habitat for birds and land that the Fish and Wildlife Service may not necessarily acquire.
0: What about the... uh well, actually, why, why don't we get specific and talk about the the actual bird species that uh, that fly over, that migrate over the different. I mean, we know that. I I think we're all familiar with the uh, the eagle um, mating that happens around Essex, right over the river um, in that area. But uh, what are some of the other species that are, uh, you know, part of our ecosystem and that really depend on, on the different regions of Connecticut for their migrational, uh, support.
1: There have been, uh, approximately 450 species of birds recorded in Connecticut, um, all time. Um, and, uh, so there's, there's a great, great variety of birds out there that, that, uh, call Connecticut home. Some of them uh, are regular migrants that come through each year in the spring and the fall. Some of them nest here and winter elsewhere. Some are year-round residents. Uh, Some of them winter here and nest elsewhere. So um, an example of a migrant might be the semi-formated sandpiper, which nests way up in uh, Arctic Canada and Alaska and flies nonstop after they're done breeding, flies nonstop to the shores of Hudson Bay, fattens up a little bit there, and then flies nonstop to the East Coast, including places like Milford Point and Milford and Sandy Point in, in West Haven, and fattens up fatten up some more, and then they fly nonstop to South America directly. And in the spring, that's reversed.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about specific species that uh, inhabit our area in, this, in the uh, warmer times, but, but uh, you know, that use this area as a migrational one of the legs on the stool as you said
1: yes um wood thrush would be a good good example of one that nests here in connecticut they've declined by approximately 70 percent over the last 50 years as well and um they uh are a species that nests in our woodlands in Connecticut, and uh, not just any woodlands. It has to have the right structure. It has to have an uh, um, appropriate understory. Um, to, if you go to an area of woods that's sort of middle-aged woods with um, just a canopy and 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 forest floor, uh, you're not going to find the wood thrush. They need They need forest structure. So uh, they're dependent to a degree on disturbance, um, be the wind wind blown, wind wind throws, you know, from ice storms, uh, um, or um, you know, management of the forests. Um, They are also a migrant through Connecticut. Um, They nest to our north as well. So in late April and and May we get wood thrush moving through, and you might get them in areas where they aren't going to nest, uh, such as your yard. And then in, in the wintertime, they, they winter in the montane forests of uh, Central, and Central America and, and Mexico.
0: Can you talk to us about some of the larger birds, like the osprey, the hawks, and the eagles that uh, are quite numerous in our, in our state?
1: Sure. Osprey is one of the great success stories of conservation. Um, Back in the 1970s, there was less than a handful of nests and they were having reproductive problems, mostly concentrated around the mouth of the the Connecticut River um, down in Old Lyme. And... um, um, Rachel Carson and others uh, recognized that there were problems with pesticides, and uh, the pesticides, turns out, were interfering with the eggshell production. And the eggs were so fragile that when the adults sat on the eggs, they would crush the eggs rather than than brooding them. So there was... uh, um, You know, osprey were practically an endangered species. Uh, Today, there are more than 600 nests in Connecticut uh, Mm -hmm. uh, from the coast up throughout Connecticut. Um, So... They've really made a comeback, and uh, banning of DDT was a big part of that. There was also some scientists, including some from the Connecticut Audubon Society, who, who worked to to bring eggs up from the Chesapeake, where they were doing a little better, um, to try and reestablish the uh, nesting uh, osprey garden at the mouth of of the Connecticut river which are the uh ancestors of many of the os- osprey we have here to- today eagles are another tremendous success story they uh, were extirpated from connecticut um for many years and i can remember when uh in the uh in the 90s early 90s there was only one nest uh in connecticut up in bark and and uh today there are more than 80 nests in the state and you can find an eagle almost any day, uh, anywhere in the state of
0: Connecticut. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, of course, a great fan of the ospreys, and I live on the shoreline in uh, southern Connecticut. And we have the platforms are, are have been provided by, I guess, land trusts to pro- provide the uh, the ospreys with with. Nesting areas that I think are—they <laughs> seem to love They're, they are you know—they're above the ground by maybe 20 feet, I would say, 20 to 30 feet, and they're flat platforms upon which the ospreys very uh, assiduously build their nests. Early, they are—they're already there. They—they they arrived, I think, in. Oh my God! Early March, I think I saw the first osprey in uh, in Stony Creek, but uh, yeah. So that's a, a, to what extent do those platforms play a role in in this process of um, helping them to sustain and, and increase their populations?
1: Yeah, they play a big role. There's been a huge effort of uh, of community science. To provide these nesting platforms for osprey, and that's been a big factor in their recovery. It keeps them their eggs up off the ground, where uh, you know they might be more vulnerable to predation. And if designed properly, you can exclude most predators from from the nests, except for avian predators. Um, the bald eagles may end up being a limiting factor for. Uh, the osprey. I haven't heard of a bald eagle nesting on an osprey platform yet, but <laughs> bald eagles will come in and and harass uh, nesting osprey pair if they're in their territory.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, and the the most the largest concentration of of uh, eagles, bald eagles, is where is that around the in the Connecticut uh, River basin? Yeah, yeah,
1: along the Connecticut River has the highest concentration of nesting and wintering eagles.
0: Right. Uh can you talk a little bit about the uh legislation that is pending before the state legislature that uh could could aid in this process of of supporting and increasing our bird populations in Connecticut?
1: Sure. Uh you may have heard in the news about the death of a bald eagle from uh, rodenticides recently and uh um it was uh, brought into a place called Hope and uh was unfortunately they, they weren't able to I think it came from New Hartford originally they weren't able to save the bird and the bird ended up perishing and it turns out it was from uh, rodenticides and there's an act uh state bill number 962 uh, an act concerning the certain use of certain rodenticides that would restrict the use of rodenticides and reduce the use of rodenticides um problem is that the, these rodenticides kill their targets slowly and end mm. up you know the the, the dying rats uh, end up being uh, uh, easy prey for for birds we're finding even non rodent eating birds are being affected by this so somehow um, it's it's uh, accumulating in the food chain as well so um, that, that's uh, a bill that we have an action alert out on right now along with state bill, uh, senate bill number 963 an act concerning neonicotinoids for the, the um, for non-agricultural use and that would ban the use of neonicotinoid Uh, insecticides uh, for non-agricultural uses, and neonicotinoids are um, very toxic to pollinators and directly to birds as well.
0: Hmm. And I I know there's a a bill uh, that, uh, I think it's HB 6813, which is an act authorizing the protection of seabirds and uh, shorebirds, and there's another one, HB 6607, which uh, also uh, pertains to these issues. Uh, as as you answer that question could you do you have any uh, is is the tweed airport expansion in your sights at all when when you promote these bills which uh, that that's a that's a project which would gobble up a uh, huge quantity of the wetlands Right along the Farm River, and you know, in that in that basin there, in Morse Cove, that is critical to bird migration.
1: Yes, uh, I was I was at the hearing last Saturday. Unfortunately, I I uh, wasn't able to speak because it, there were so many people there um, speaking that uh, that they ran out of time. But uh, yes, we we plan to put in testimony that there should be an environmental impact uh, statement. Produced, Uh, we feel that the analysis of uh, uh, impact on birds uh, from the EA environmental assessment is inadequate, and that a that a full environmental impact statement should be produced.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And any other? Actually, we're coming down to the last minutes, but. Laura, any thoughts on these bills or any, any other questions you'd like to get in here? Well,
4: I was really struck when we talked last week about how the the health of the birds directly reflects our health as humans because we all need the same thing to survive. Um, what what can people do to help our ecosystem because we are a part of the ecosystem?
1: Yeah, we are. The birds require the same things that we do, uh, healthy You know, clean air, clean water, healthy soils and uh, um, just in general, nature has been shown to uh, um, be important for human health to be able to be out in the nature uh, in nature. Being an advocate is one of the top things that you can do. uh, I would mentioned that we have an advocacy alert that we just sent on those uh, uh, two pesticide bills recently. Uh, You can go to our website and you can sign up to become an advocate where you get notice of uh, uh, opportunities to speak out both in favor of good bills and against bad bills. Uh, Volunteering... uh, we have uh, our Osprey Nation program where, where people uh, monitor osprey nests throughout the state and there's the Audubon Alliance for Coastal Waterbirds that works on protecting the uh, shorebirds nesting and sh- nesting and migrating shorebirds and seabirds up along the coast of Connecticut uh, working to address climate change is another important I- issue. Uh, um, in terms of our own personal choices to try and limit our carbon footprint. Uh, supporting open space preservation, that ties in with advocating uh, to a large degree unless uh, you uh, happen to have some property that you can can donate to a land trust. But uh, uh, Habitat Loss is uh, um, one of the chief... Uh, problems facing birds and other wildlife in, in, in globally, but here in Connecticut, in, in particular, um, landscaping for birds using native, uh, getting rid of invasives and planting natives. Uh, we have a, uh, a blog called Natural Selections, and one of the features in that call is called Homegrown Habitat. And um, if you uh, go there, you get tips on, uh, you know, roughly once a month, they feature a native plant that and, and talk about uh, what what uh, uh, what benefits it may have. Uh, All right, reducing.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, but we're going to need to uh, to wrap it up because uh, we're going to get uh, shut down here. Um, but I want to thank. Uh-
4: Thank you very much, Patrick, and I just want to mention that the C.T. Audubon has their annual Migration Madness events on May 20th to 21st, and their website is ctaudubon.org.
0: Beautiful. Well okay. done, Ra- Laura, and uh, I think we're all set here.
2: Yep. Thank you, Patrick. Uh,
0: thank you all. Thank
4: you, Patrick. Thank you, Laura. Thank, thank, you. thank
0: you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Steve, and, of course, Vincent. We'll be back Uh be back in two weeks. <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> Whatever that is. You, you, know. you, you do the math. <laughs> Thanks. I'm FDA approved. Organic love.
2: This is the Gaia Gram. Environmental headlines from around
5: a planet in crisis. Two tornadoes that caused significant damage in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara counties last week were part of a series of wild weather events across California. There are an average of one or two tornadoes per year in the four-county area, including Los Angeles, Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo counties, and an average of seven to ten per year across the state. More than 8,000 gallons of an acrylic polymer solution leaked last Friday into a tributary of the Delaware River, a source of Philadelphia's drinking water. At first, Philadelphia announced that residents should stock up on bottled water because an industrial chemical spill several miles upstream of the city's water intakes was poised to contaminate the water supply. Now, Mayor Jim Kenney has announced that all the city's drinking water is safe to drink and will not be impacted by the spill. According to a new report by UNICEF and the World Health Organization, billions of people around the world are continuing to suffer from poor access to water, sanitation, and hygiene. Some 2.2 billion people around the world do not have safely managed drinking water services. 4.2 billion people do not have safely managed sanitation services. And 3 billion lack basic hand-washing facilities. According to an estimate by a large investor group known as FAIR, 40 of the world's largest livestock producers may collectively see profits fall by almost $24 billion in 2030 from 2020 levels as a result of climate change. The forecasted reduction in profits mainly reflects a jump in feed prices and carbon taxes. The group of 40 companies could see profit margins fall by as much as 7%. As found in Your active, according to the government's annual forest report published by the German Agriculture and Forestry Ministry, some 80% of German trees suffer from crown dieback. The high share of unhealthy trees in Germany over the years can be explained by the fact forests were not able to recover from the dry years Germany has seen since 2018. The ministry added, our most valuable ecosystem suffers the consequences of the climate crisis, Only healthy forests store carbon and act as our natural air conditioners. EU countries have approved an end to the sale of gas-powered cars in 2035, allowing the law to enter into force. EU Environment Commissioner Franza Timmermans said with its vote this week, the European Council has taken an important step towards zero-emission mobility. The EU agreed to grant the exemption for cars using e-fuels, which will allow the sale of combustion vehicles that will only run on e-fuels after 2035. As reported in the Financial Times, the U.S.'s top environmental enforcer, the head of the EPA, vowed that no oil and gas systems would be getting out of jail free as the Biden administration strengthens a clampdown on methane pollution despite pushback from energy companies and Republican allies in Congress. The Biden administration has made curbs on leaks of methane, the main component of natural gas, a crucial part of its fight to slash greenhouse gas emissions. According to the International Energy Commission, methane has accounted for about 30 percent of the rise in global temperatures since the Industrial Revolution. Wagner Park, a cherished waterfront green space in Battery Park City, boasts unobstructed views of the Statue of Liberty and New York Harbor. Built nearly 30 years ago, the park has served as an escape for residents of the fast-paced, densely packed neighborhood in Lower Manhattan. Now New York will demolish and elevate the waterfront park to fight floods, which is angering some neighbors. In a few weeks, the park will be demolished, as part of a major $221 million climate resilience plan. The Battery Park City Authority will tear down Wagner Park, reconstruct it with new flood prevention features, and raise it by 10 feet. The change will protect the neighborhood from flooding, storm surge, and rising sea levels.
2: This was the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis.
4: WPKN Programming is
0: supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low-environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en.
5: This is